Well, we're going to continue uh, the series we began last week on Israel. Thank you for coming back. Uh, I'm going to stay with this one for quite some time because uh, the more I look at it, there are many facets to the subject that uh, I think would be helpful for us to examine. So I was thinking of the situation in the Middle East, as I know many of you have been. It's complex in many ways, and I was trying to cut through all the complexities to make sense of the conflict there. So I wrote a story which I want to share with you tonight, and for some it won't be the first time because some years ago I did the same thing. But I'd like to do it again uh, for those of you who maybe weren't here or who, like me, forget. Uh, this is not a true story, so let me just go on record. Let's call it kind of a parable, which, uh, if you pay attention, uh, maybe will reveal to you um, aspects of what's going on in the Middle East today. And then, when I finish sharing with you this fictitious story, I'm going to explain it and relate it uh, specifically to the crisis in the Middle East. So here's the story. There was a man uh, who some years ago, let's say a hundred years ago, uh, determined to begin a business, um, an industry. So he built a factory. And his interest was to produce uh, as a product in the factory rubber bands. It was to be a rubber band factory. And when he announced his intentions, many people nearby uh, made fun of the whole idea because where this man wanted to locate the factory uh, seemed to be a place whose natural resources wouldn't lend themselves well to the production of this particular uh, product. But the man proceeded in that place anyway to build the factory. And as the years went on, much to everyone's surprise, the factory succeeded. He did quite well uh, to such an extent that onlookers were moved to jealousy over the prosperity and success with which this man's factory operation proceeded. Well, things were going pretty well. It was a family-owned business, uh, which was passed on amongst family members from generation to generation. And things were going pretty well until the company came into the hands of an heir to it, a family member, whose devotion to the company business was not anything like it had been. And this person was a little reckless and irresponsible and desired not so much to invest any longer in this rubber band factory, but rather to, um, in quotes, live the good life. And so he went off sowing his wild oats for many, many years. And while he was away from the factory, 
it fell, as you might imagine, into disrepair. Nothing much was done with it. It just began to fall apart. Well, years after this particular family member uh, saw the impoverishment of his worldly lifestyle, he returned to the factory uh, of his family and to which he was the rightful heir. You see, in his recklessness and rebellion, he retained the title deed to the factory, uh, but in his irresponsibility, he had no access to it, and it fell into disrepair. While he was gone and before he returned, some people in the area saw the building, the structure of it, and decided since it was there and unoccupied to move in and to occupy it so that when this person, family member, an heir to the factory came back, he found the factory there and these people, different people. They were not his family members at all, living there in his factory. Now, he as the rightful owner of the factory, had every right to forcibly remove these people uh, from living in his factory, and yet he decided not to do so, but rather to allow them to remain there, albeit in a separate part of the factory. So his plan was to reside with his family in part of the building and produce these rubber bands, as had been done for centuries, and allow these other folks to occupy a different part of the building. Well, um, much to his surprise, they were not um, pleased with the terms. You see, in the years of his absence, I suppose they lost sight of who the rightful owner of the factory was and actually persuaded themselves that they were. And so... They were pretty mad about the whole deal and went out into the community rather ingeniously, uh, having taken photos of the decrepit conditions in which they lived in the factory. You see, they had not done much with it through all these years. So the photos were very graphic representation of their impoverishment, and horrible living conditions in the factory owned by this guy. They did this to rally community support and with a good deal of success. And so many people in the community said, this is horrible that you have to live under such terrible, dismal conditions and can't understand how that factory owner would not do something to improve your situation. And uh, this is not fair at all. And so the community folks began to pump in rather large sums of money to these who were occupying uh, this other guy's building so as to improve their lot in life. And yet those who lived in this building, which really wasn't theirs to begin with, uh, did not Uh, make use of the money as it was intended to improve their living situation. In fact, they used the money uh, to buy slingshots and BB guns with which they could harass 
uh, the owner of the company and his family and children and employees. Well, finally, the owner of the building realized he had to do something about all this so as to protect his workers and his family members. And so he began to take steps to do so. And these who were occupying his building said, uh, here are our terms. We will make peace with you if you give us more space in your building. Well, the factory owner said, I can't do this. There's barely enough room left for my family and I to live in. They said, well, too bad. No space, no peace. That's the only way. And so the occupants of the building uh, kept up the harassment and opposition. They spat upon the owner's wife and kids. They threatened his employees. He had no choice but to do something about it. But when he took steps to defend himself and his family by taking away the slingshots and BB guns of these who were encroaching upon his own real estate, it it was as if everybody in the community turned against him and saw him to be the guilty party and the oppressor and not these other folks. And then he said to the community uh, organizers, but wait a second, these who are living in my building have relatives all around this factory, and their relatives have ownership of many factories much larger than this singular factory which we possess. Why don't these people who are claiming to be living in oppressive conditions in my factory, why are they not embraced by and taken in by their relatives who own surrounding factories all over the place? He couldn't get a good answer from anybody. So he was pretty confused and overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do. And All the while, he, the factory owner, seemed to be rather amazingly unaware of a most unusual elderly man who lived nearby in a very large mansion high on a steep hill in the city in which the factory was located. And that mysterious elderly man once made a promise Uh, to the troubled factory owner. He said, you can call on me any time. I'm willing to help you with anything, and I have the resources to do it. But sadly, uh, the factory owner never called upon this elderly man in the big house on the hill and The elderly man continued to walk by the factory day after day. But neither the owner of the factory nor the uh, folks who were living in it ever called upon the elderly man for help. Both acted, in fact, as if he, the elderly man, wasn't even there, didn't even exist. And as a result, the conflict continued and even became Worse, and nobody seemed to have a solution to it at all. The elderly man on the hill could help, but he continued to be ignored by both sides to the conflict. 
That's the story. Now, let me explain it to you if you missed what I'm getting at. The factory is the modern state of Israel, founded on May 14th, 1948. Title deed to the land was given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis through the Abrahamic covenant, which we reviewed last week. The title deed based on the unconditional nature of the covenant, is irreversibly in the hands of this family of people, Jewish people. But because of the irresponsibility, stiff-neckedness, and rebellion of my own people, we have not had access to our own factory, if you will, our own land for many years, during which time it's gone rather undeveloped and unignored until May 14th, 1948, when God gloriously enabled us to return to our own homeland. After over 2,000 years of diaspora or dispersion amongst the nations. But even through this time of dispersion, the title deed to the factory, to the land, has never been rescinded still lies in the hands of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this period of time when the Jewish people were, as a nation, out of their land, their factory or the land fell largely into disrepair. Israel, swampy, mosquito-infested territory. And when Israel, uh, my people, returned to the land after being ousted from it in A.D. 70 uh, by the Romans, who burned down Jerusalem and the temple and kept us from access to our own land. Since A.D. 70, we haven't been there, and in all that time, it's really fallen into disrepair. Even though people, Arab peoples, have lived in the land. Nothing much has been done with it. No Arab leader ever in all this time has made any attempt to establish any Arab camp, uh, capital in the land of Canaan, in the Holy Land, in modern-day Israel. No attempts in thousands of years have been made by any Arab leader to establish a capital in the land of Canaan. In fact, no significant Arab leader even visited the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is mentioned over 700 times in the Bible and not once in the Quran, the holy book of Islam. Not once in the Quran. So in all of these years when the Jews were out of the land, out of the factory, <laughs> no attempts have ever been made to make it uh, the capital of any Arab people group. And Jerusalem has been largely insignificant 
in Islamic thinking in all of this time, the land, the factory, remained largely unnoticed, unimportant, undeveloped, a swampland with mosquitoes, nothing growing, nothing blooming, until the Jewish people returned to the land, largely as a result of the Holocaust in which six million of us were put in ovens and perished. God used it to arouse the sympathies of the world to allow us a place of our own. So uh, the Holocaust actually was the precursor to our return to the homeland after thousands of years. When the factory owner, the Jews, returned to the land, there were Arab people there permitted to stay. But many left. 68%, in fact, of the Arab peoples who were living in the land prior to the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, 68% up and left. Why? Because their leaders said to do so. Make yourself like refugees for a while until we annihilate the Jews, and then you could come back into the land. 68% left Arabs, left of their own volition. They did not leave at Jewish gunpoint. The factory owner allowed these who occupied the factory to remain in the factory. They chose 68% to leave as refugees until their leaders succeeded in killing off the Jews. And those who left were intentionally not assimilated into the factories owned by their wealthy family members. The Arab refugees, 68% of whom who left in 1948, could have made their home in any one of 22 Arab countries surrounding surrounding dinky Israel. One factory, 22 factories. These Arab refugees, the forebears of the people group we refer to today as Palestinians, are the only group in human history, the only refugee group in human history that has not been assimilated by their own people. But Jews all over the world, from Nazi Germany to Yemen, can make the right of return to Israel and be fully assimilated and incorporated into a country whose land area is less than New Jersey. Why? Because if the Arab nations, if the other factory owners assimilate and incorporate into their factories their own relatives, they will lose the propaganda advantage. You take pictures of the decrepit conditions in the factory in which they are forced to live, and the community of nations rallies behind them as over against the oppressive factory owner, Israel. So you show little Palestinian kids with slingshots going against Israeli tanks. 
First of all, what kind of people would put their kids in front of tanks? It's photo op. And so millions of dollars are poured into the PA or Palestinian Authority, which used to be the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization of Yasser Arafat. The name has been changed, but the intention remains the same, and that is to drive the Jews into the sea. So millions of dollars are poured into uh, areas of Israel occupied by the Palestinians now, the intent being to improve the infrastructure of Palestinian people. Here's money for hospitals and for schools and for all the rest, but they're buying BB guns and slingshots from Russia and from Iran to kill my people. So the world community is pumping in all of this money because of the poverty in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank, but there's no reason for it. Stop buying arms from Russia and Iran and build hospitals and schools for your own people. But you, you lose the propaganda advantage if you do that. And the slingshots and the BB guns, well, they don't just, they don't just represent minor uh, conflict. Um, they represent war. Five wars propagated against dinky Israel by combined Arab forces since 1948. The first one, minutes after Israel declared its independence on May 14, 1948, called the Israeli War of Independence, the Arab nations attacked. Five times, not one was initiated by Israel. Everyone was won by Israel because God is true to his word. That's why. It's not because of Israel being so hot. It's because of Israel's God being trustworthy. So it's a little more than slingshots and, and baby guns. It's out and out war. And so monies from the world are being poured in to improve the infrastructure. Interestingly, of a people group intent on driving Israel into the sea. And what's very interesting about the whole thing is that this particular people group who are the recipients of uh, all of this funding and political recognition and so on, uh, it's a people group called the Palestinians. <laughs> and there is no such distinct people group on earth. <laughs> you're, you're buying a lie. There is no language called Palestinian. Show me a person who speaks Palestinian. There is no Palestinian call. Please don't miss what I'm saying. The Palestinians are not my enemy. Satan is my enemy. I want the Palestinians to receive the same grace and mercy by which I am redeemed. I don't have anything over anybody. Uh, I'm a debtor just like anyone apart from Christ is. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying just don't buy this whole deal. There's never been a, a distinct Palestinian culture, Palestinian uh, language, Palestinian country. In fact, 
The very name Palestine, did you know, is not a biblical name? It's called the land of Canaan in Genesis. Came to be known as other things thereafter, but never Palestine from the Bible. You know where that name came from? What would you say? Hey, well said, uh, under British control. Listen, if you have nothing to do and show up next week, I want to talk to you about the British mandate and the Balfour Declaration and all that other kind of stuff. But anyway, um, the Jews revolted against Rome in A.D. 70 and A.D. 135, two Jewish revolts. You know, you get to a point where you say enough is enough and you fight back. Well, we lost. Uh, Rome is pretty tough and so on. And so as a penalty for the Jewish revolts, uh, the Roman emperors uh, th- uh, threw my people out of the land and changed its name. And they chose as the name uh, for the land, the Holy Land, the land of Canaan, uh, given to my ancestors. Uh, uh, they chose as its name uh, the name taken from Israel's perennial enemies, the Philistines. That's where you get Palestine. But the Palestinians do not trace their heritage to the Philistines. The Philistines were a seafaring people from Greek islands. The Palestinians are Arab peoples. Don't misunderstand. My argument is not with Arab peoples. Again, my argument is with Satan. But I'm just trying to make a point. Palestinians are Arab people. Most Palestinians are Jordanian. They're from Jordan. There is no country called Palestine. It was the Romans throwing this up in the face of the Jews and saying, not only is we're not going to allow you to have access to your own land, we're going to change its name to remind you of the Philistines. So we're buying this whole deal about a Palestinian state and let's divide Jerusalem and make East Jerusalem the Palestinian capital. Could I ask you a question? Why were these efforts to create a Palestinian state and capital, why did we never hear about them until 1948? Prior to the foundation uh, of the modern state of Israel, did you know the land was in Jordanian control? For 20 years before 1948. Why didn't Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, under King Hussein, who's now deceased, why didn't they then create a Palestinian state? You know why? There's no such thing as Palestinian people. (laughs) They were Jordanians. And the whole world is buying this thing. 22 Arab nations, most of which are astoundingly oil-rich can easily absorb all those who are living in horrible conditions in Gaza and the West Bank. But then you lose the propaganda advantage. So so Israel is being (laughs) accused of all manner of oppression with regard to a group of people that doesn't even exist. Except if, as Arab peoples, yes, who ought to be treated fairly and loved and shown the grace of Almighty God just as all the rest of us have received, but good night. We're creating a state and, and, and dividing Jerusalem for a people group that doesn't have a distinct identity, a language, culture, never did. 
Man, oh man, I don't know what you're saying, but I hope it's good. <laughs> but you feel free to get it out. I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> so, all right, look. Uh, the factory owner has not, has not evicted those who've moved into the factory. Do you know there's over one million um, Arab people who are full-fledged citizens of the state of Israel? Over one million. You go, they go to schools, they use the hospitals, they vote. Do you know they actually hold, some Arabs hold uh, positions in the Israeli Knesset, which is their parliament? Could you please tell me what my life expectancy would be in most Arab countries? <laughs> would I get the vote, hold political office, if sick have access to a hospital? Are you kidding me? Not even close. Not even close. So... <sighs> The factory owner has given up Jericho, Jericho, Bethlehem, the place of the Lord's birth. The West Bank, which is the area west of the Jordan River, it's ancient Judea and Samaria. And Gaza. After the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel recovered uh, the West Bank, the eastern part of Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. Israel was attacked and recovered these territories, and now the world is putting pressure on Israel to give them back. Could I ask you, name me one country in history that's ever been asked to return territory it took in defense of itself. Name me one. Listen. I don't see the United States of America too quick getting ready to give back Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California to Mexico. When we give those states back to Mexico, let's pressure Israel to give back all the territory they took in defending themselves against wars of conquest and aggression. Syria wants the Golan Heights and the United Nations wants them to give it back. Wants Israel to give it back. You know what the Golan Heights are? The heights. You know what Syria did for years? Rained down havoc on innocent Israeli civilians on the low ground. Any military person worth his salt knows you don't give up the high ground. But the world wants Israel to give back the Golan Heights. Could I tell you something? I think Israel might, because my people don't get it. It's like Esau giving away his birthright for a pot of stew. You can't give away what God gave you as your inheritance and expect that it will lead to peace. Those who occupied the factory said, here are our terms, more space or no peace. And that's what you got in Israel. I'll show you next week maps, my friends, maps. And I'll show you divided Israel. And I'll show you now it's almost becoming humanly indefensible because it's given away so much territory. We wouldn't do it. 
We send our troops halfway around the world, and I support them, to defend our country from those who want to destroy our way of life. Good night. Israel doesn't have halfway around the world. Her enemies are there, and we want her to give up more of her land. It just doesn't seem right to me. Why, therefore, such animosity towards dinky old Israel? Why this intense hatred and intentionality to drive the Jews into the sea? By the way, when that's stated, it means the Mediterranean Sea, in case you're wondering. Drive them into the Mediterranean uh, Sea. Why such hatred and animosity? Why such historical um, hatred of the Jews? I mean, are we that big a deal? I mean, why are we so offensive to people? What is the thing? No, I know I am personally, but I'm not. I mean, what is the, why don't, you know, at best you ignore Jews. Why do you want to kill them? Burn them? Why? The Jews have been the most persecuted people group in the history of humankind. Why? Why is there such interest? One of our Bible, Sunday Bible study members asked this super question. Why so much interest in taking over a land area, again, the size of New Jersey? Such a good question is asked, and I would like to provide an answer. Because you can't make sense of it. Here's a rule of thumb. Whenever you can't make sense through rational processes of something going on in the world, it's because you're looking for the answer in the wrong place. That's it. Look for spiritual realities behind geopolitical realities. So here's why there's so much animosity and intent to destroy the Jews. The existence, the presence of the Jews in Israel today does two things which Satan hates. Here's the first. The presence of the Jews in the land today, number one, proves the Bible. Can I share this passage with you? Psalm 105, verses 8 to 11. You can look at it if you care to. I'll read it to you. Psalm 105, 8 to 11. Listen. He has, this is God, he has remembered, the church has forgotten largely, but he has remembered his covenant. That's why I started with Abrahamic covenant made by God unconditionally with Abram and his descendants. He has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Psalm 105, verse 8 to 11. What confuses you about that? The fact that the Jews are now there, regathered from the four corners of the earth, May 14, 1948, is one of the most outstanding proofs for the reliability of the scriptures I know. 
someone says, I doubt the Bible, you say, then explain to me the Jews in their homeland after over 2,500 years of dispersion. Explain it. Please don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not tooting a Jewish horn. I want you to be in love with, fall at the feet of, and worship forevermore the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for what he says he will do. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he has anything to repent of. Has he said in the Abrahamic covenant, and will he not make it good? And it has nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with God's sovereign choice of Israel as the vehicle through which he would manifest his grace and mercy to the entire world. Satan hates this. He wants to make God out to be a liar. He wants to prove to you, church people, that just as God has forsaken Israel, your day is coming. You don't have assurance of your new covenant either. You don't have assurance of salvation. The next time you sin, you must doubt whether God will stick with you because he's withdrawn himself from Israel. Can you see what's at stake? So Satan hates the fact that the Jews are in the land because it more than anything else proves the veracity and the reliability and the inspiration of the holy word of God. That's why you have to drive the Jews into the sea and make God out a liar. Look, he made an eternal covenant with them and couldn't fulfill it. You see it? It has nothing to do with Israel. It has nothing to do with politics. It surely has nothing to do with the United Nations. <laughs> now, um, what I just did doesn't show up on the audio tape, so I'm safe. It has all to do with Almighty God. In A.D. 70, the Romans burned Jerusalem to the ground. If you go to Israel today, hey, why don't you go with me in September? Lord willing, I'm going to go back there. Uh, unless he comes first, and then we all go. No jet lag. But you can go there today and still see the actual stones, which were the structure of the temple, thrown down to the ground by the Romans in A.D. 70. Since that time, the Jews had not had uh, unbridled access to their land. They have experienced over these thousands of years massacres and genocides and ghettos and purges and deportations and forced baptisms and concentration camps and guests chambers, and I want you to explain to me how still there was left enough of us to be numerous enough to form a state. I know six million of us perished, but you explain to me why there are 14 million of us alive today. Is it because we're so tough? No, look at us. <laughs> Our existence proves nothing but that God can be trusted. That's what it proves. Um, there's a man who perhaps some of you are familiar with, Dr. William F. Albright, for many years professor of Semitic languages at Johns Hopkins uh, University, and considered by many uh, to be the foremost biblical archaeologist of modern times. Albright said this, 
I quote, no other phenomenon in history is quite so extraordinary as the unique event represented by the restoration of Israel. At no other time in world history, so far as is known, has a people been destroyed and then come back after a lapse of time and reestablished itself. It is utterly out of the question to seek a parallel for the recurrence of Israel's restoration after 2,500 years of further history, end quote. That's the explanation for the assault on the existence of Jews. We prove the Bible just by existing. Number two thing, uh, by way of explanation for the conflict and the persecution and the hatred and the oppression of the Jews. And by the way, I'm not being overly dramatic. Are you aware of this rise of anti-Semitism in our day? Coming from most unusual quarters, including the church. We'll get to that when we address the subject of replacement theology in, uh, in, in weeks ahead. I mean, we are blamed for everything. I mean, we're blamed for it. Okay, so, so, so here's the second reason for the assault on the existence of Jews, and this is the second thing that Satan hates. The first thing, the existence of Jews, particularly in their homeland, proves the Bible, but number two, it disproves the Koran. It disproves the Koran. Please, I must qualify. I don't have animosity towards Muslim people. Oh, no. But for the grace of God, where would I be? Where would you be? I don't have anything over anybody. I don't want us turning against uh, 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 Muslim people. Oh, no. I want, us to, I want to, us to love Muslim neighbors. I want to, us to be living proof of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but I have to be honest with you and tell you what the Quran teaches. Islam teaches that the Jews and the Christians are people of the book. So the Jews are people of the Old Testament and Christians are people of the New Testament. And the Quran, Islam teaches that the Jews were to be recipients in the Old Testament of great privilege and promise, but forfeited all through disobedience. Then the Christians came along, people of the book, the new book, the New Testament, and they were to inherit the privileges and promises which Israel forfeited, but the Christians went the same way. They too let God down, rebelled, and forfeited their privilege. And so God raised up a prophet, Muhammad, through whom he spoke in visions and who gave the Quran in which it says Islam now is the religion which supersedes Judaism and Christianity. And so all the promises given to the Jews in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, have now become um, uh, the inheritance of, of those who follow Allah and the great prophet Muhammad. And there's a marvelously symbolic and graphic way in which this thinking is portrayed in Israel today. When you see pictures of Israel, you see its most prominent feature to be this marvelous uh, piece of architecture called the Dome of the Rock, golden domed on the temple platform on which used to stand Solomon's temple. Also on the platform is um, 
the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is the third holiest site in Islam next to Mecca and Medina. It is thought on a rock underneath the dome of the rock. Mohammed was resurrected into heaven on a horse. This is, this is what the Quran teaches. <clears throat> and so you have the dome on the, of the rock up here, highest elevation, the third holiest site in Islam above the holiest site in Judaism, which is, we call it the Wailing Wall, but Israelis refer to it as the Western Wall. You see Jews weeping there. It's the holiest site in Judaism today. It's the perimeter wall, not actually the wall of the temple at all, just the perimeter wall for the temple mount on which Solomon's temple and Herod's renovated temple stood. So you have the, the third holiest site in Islam, the Dome of the Rock, up here. You have the Wailing Wall down here. And right down the block, you have the holiest site for Orthodox Christians. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it is thought there by some that that's the place where the Lord Jesus was crucified, uh, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So up above, you have this Muslim holy site. Down below, a Jewish holy site. And further down the road, also down below, a Christian holy site. It's a way of portraying in a very graphic way that Islam has been raised up by God to supersede the false religions of Judaism and Christianity. The people of the book, the Jews and the Christians, have been forsaken by God. And so this Dome of the Rock is hugely important in Islamic thinking today. And so the Quran teaches that the Jews are now a forsaken people because they have turned their backs on God. But there's a little problem with that thinking. See, if you've ever gone to Israel, it doesn't look like the uh, land has been forsaken. doesn't look like the Jews in the land uh, ain't doing too well. That is not a third world country. You go to Israel and check it out. You would be amazed to see what's blooming in the desert. What used to be a mosquito-infested swampland... <laughs> Is one of the strongest in economies in the world today. Israel exports food to Europe. Israel's on the forefront of military technology, aerospace technology, medical technology. Of course, they're Jewish doctors. It's, a, it's an unbelievable land. Major universities with high academic rating. Finest schools in the world. Standard of living. That's very competitive with ours. That seems to fly in the face of the teaching of the Quran, which says God has forsaken the Jews. You know, I feel like saying, hey, keep forsaking us. We're doing pretty good. That's the other reason why the intifada or the uprising has to succeed and force the Jews into the sea and wipe them out because the existence of Jews, particularly doing as well as they are in the land, disproves 
what Muhammad taught. And if it disproves what Muhammad taught, that means Muhammad is a false prophet. And if Muhammad is a false prophet, that means the Quran lied. And if the Quran lied, it means Islam is a false religion. You hear what I'm saying? Do you realize what's at stake here? Do you know the implications? Can you see why um, Islamic people are so disgusted with us? Every time a, a little heap walks around, it's kind of like in your face. Hey, we're still the apple of God's eye. He has not withdrawn his covenant and blessing upon us. They're unconditional and in spite of us. He's going to fulfill his word and his promises and all the rest. Read all about it. We're like all over the place. You can't get rid of us. We're kind of like cockroaches or something. <laughs> it flies in the face of the teaching of Islam. So can you see this twofold reason why there's such intent to destroy the Jews? And by the way, the Holocaust is going to be looking like a picnic uh, with regard to what's coming next from my people in the Great Tribulation, which we will talk about in days to come, um, uh, many of my people are going to perish. It's going to come. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Our own prophets told us about it. Not looking forward to it. That's why the best thing you can do for my people right now is get us saved from it all. Help us avoid the tribulation and the wrath of God and all that. Tell us it's already been poured out on the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus, for our sin. That's what you could do if you want to take care of us. Good night. Tell me how to escape all this. I thank God for the guy who did. Anyway, these are the reasons why there's such astounding animosity and hatred towards the Jews. So... How's this all going to work out? You know how in the story I told you about the elderly man, the mysterious elderly man on the hill who said, I'll help you. Ask me. I have resources. And it was ignored, though he walked by the factory every day. Of course, you know I'm speaking about Almighty God, who both sides ignore. I'm speaking about Almighty God. Nobody can resolve the conflict in the Middle East. I mean, all these meetings that are going on, oh, for crying out loud, I'm watching Dancing with the Stars. I mean, you have got to be joking me. You've got to be kidding me. All these deals and agreements and meetings, I'm going to tell you about all this Camp David stuff and all this next week. Um, you know, that's not going to, God is showing us that we cannot resolve the problems we have created through our fall from Genesis 3 on. Only he can bring peace first to individual lives and then to people groups and then to the world. Only the Sar Shalom, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can make for peace. And that's why we're commanded not invited, commanded in the Bible, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That doesn't mean put down BB guns and stuff like that. That's political stuff. That means pray that the residents of the land, Arabs and Jews, at odds with God, 
would come through the cross upon which Jesus died to have peace with God. That's what it means, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So let me close with this. Um, Solomon uh, dedicated the temple centuries ago in Jerusalem. And when it was constructed, uh, there was a dedicatory ceremony. And um, all the people were there. Solomon was leading. And then God spoke uh, through Solomon to the people. And it's a familiar passage. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. You can see it at the United Nations building. And, you know, well-intentioned Christians claim this verse all the time for peace in America and all the rest. It has nothing to do with that. It's totally wrenched out of context. It's what God said when Solomon dedicated the temple. It's what God said to the Jews. It's nothing to do with the United Nations in America. Come on. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, it's the Jews, folks, read the context. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. If my people... You know what this means? What an offer! My people have refused it. Pray that they wouldn't. God says, my heart is open to my people, Israel. My eyes are open to their situation. My ears are open to their cry. I'm attentive to them. If they humble themselves, if they turn from their sin, if they turn to me, I will hear. I will forgive. I will heal their land. Pray, oh God, remove the darkness, remove the blindness. Bring Israel to the end of itself so that it cries out to you, their Messiah. Rescue us, O God. Forgive us, O God. We brought this upon ourselves. We've abandoned you, the chief shepherd. And we're sheep wandering aimlessly through the world and subject to ravenous wolves because we have left the fold. Oh, God, shepherd us again. We repent. We turn from our sin. We turn to you. We seek your face. That means personal relationship. It's not Judaism. It's a personal relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It could happen, folks. If the church prayed for the peace of Jerusalem, watch what the Prince of Peace could do. And if they're forsaking and hardening his blessing to the church, how much more will their redemption be? Not my words, God's. Romans chapter 11. So, oh God, that's what we pray. For the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem, which comes when there's peace between sinful man and you, a consuming fire, a holy God. And thank you, O oh God, 
that all people groups have this in common. We are lawbreakers. We have violated your commandments. We owe a debt to you, a holy God, we cannot pay. Whether we be Jewish or Arab, male or female, it doesn't matter. We owe a debt we cannot pay. And this we have in common. You have this earnest willingness to pay it for us. The redemptive price has already been provided on the cross upon which you were impaled and suffered and died. If only we would say, living Savior who rose from the dead, come into my life, forgive my sin, and give me this resurrection life. Introduce me to a family of brothers and sisters of every people, group, and tongue, and ethnicity on earth. Show us where our real citizenship lies. It is in heaven, wherein we will dwell eternally through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.